Great. I am now very excited as we launch our new series. And in this series, we are asking the question, is Jesus really enough? Is he really enough? Is he really enough for what? Is he really enough for everything? Is he enough for your life individually? Is he enough for us corporately as the church? Enough for our salvation in terms of being in glory one day? Are we really pinning all of our hopes and all of our faith in just one person? Is he enough to be the sole focus of your life? The reason for your living? Is he enough actually to change your life, to transform your life? Is he enough to actually give you a new life, a new identity, a new purpose in life? Or should we be looking at other things as well to supplement him? Is he enough for our marriages? Is he enough to turn around our marriages? Is he enough for your soon to be marriage? Is he enough for our parenting? Is he enough for our work, the values and the perspectives he gives us for work? Are they enough for us out there in the workplace? And then is he worth enough for us to tell other people about? Is he worth enough of the risk, the risk of rejection and ostracism to step out there and actually tell other people about him? Or are there alternatives Are there other things Jesus needs to be supplemented so that we can answer those questions that we've just asked? And now we can all be sitting here, you know, we're all sitting here in church and we go, no, 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 Jason, Jesus is enough. But now I don't mean to sound harsh or insensitive, but I'm not really interested in the answer that we give with our lips. I'm interested in the answer that we are already giving with our hearts and with our lives. What are those answers? What are the answers that we're already giving to the question, is Jesus really enough? And so as a faith family, you're going to be unpacking the book of Colossians verse by verse over the next couple of weeks, actually months. And uh, we're going to examine the answers that we're already uh, giving to that question. And we're going to trust for change. We're going to trust for transformation where there needs to be change, where there needs to be transformation. But yeah, let me set the the foundation a little bit by asking this question. Why did Paul even bother writing this letter to this little church? The town of Coloss, that's where we get the name for the letter, Colossians from. The town of Coloss was was a dying town. At one stage, it was a thriving little town. It was part of the trade route, and so you can imagine all of these different people with all of their goods coming into the town, and there was a real hustle and a bustle. But then the trade route changed. It bypassed Colossus and went to the surrounding cities of Hierapolis and Laodicea, and they began thriving, and Colossus began dying. And so it was fast becoming a a one-horse town, and you know only strange things begin to happen in a a, a one-horse town. All sorts of weird characters start coming out of the woodworks with all these weird theories and beliefs and philosophies and Paul himself had never visited the church, not like he knew anyone there personally. In fact, Paul was in, was in Rome under house arrest when he wrote this letter. And so this church was, 
was planted by a guy by the name of Epaphras, who was most probably converted uh, to Christianity when uh, he heard uh, Paul preaching the gospel in Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus for about three years, and every day he, he preached and he taught the gospel. And Epaphras was so inspired by the gospel and Jesus that he most likely not only planted a church in Colossus, but also in, in the surrounding cities of Heropolis and Laodicea. And so why does Paul bother writing to this church, this, this, this little one-horse back-end-of-the-woods town? Because he gets word that says something like this, Hey, Paul, the guys in Coloss are beginning to doubt that Jesus is enough for them. And the reason why is because there were so many different voices coming out of the woodworks telling them so saying, hey, you guys are crazy to be believing in just one thing. I mean, that's so narrow-minded. You're taking a a big chance, putting all of your hope, your eternal life on one person. There is so much more to believe out in the world. There is so much more to worship. There is so much more to do than just focus on this one person, Jesus. And so what was Paul old Epaphras, what was he supposed to do? Maybe even his leadership were being pulled astray by some of these false doctrines. And, and maybe the church was, was there was, a, there was a, a threat, it might divide the church. Because here's, here's what some of those voices were saying. There was a group called, um, or a group of uh, Jewish false teachers, and they were saying this. They're saying, listen, you can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you need to supplement Jesus with circumcision. Sorry, guys. And strict dietary laws, no cheat days at all. And, and you also need to obey all of these, these holy days. And you can only do certain things on these holy days. And the rest of the time, well, we have laws, a bunch of do's and don'ts that you can and can't do. And only then, if you do all of those things, only then will you be qualified to be holy and have eternal life. Then there was another bunch. Scholars were calling the Gnostics. And Gnosticism simply means to be uh, in the know, to have this knowledge. And they were saying, guys, no, 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 you need to listen to us. We have divine, esoteric knowledge on all things spiritual. And the church is like, wow, they have big words, so they must, they must be the truth. And so we're going to listen to these guys. And they were saying, listen, listen, Jesus is just one rung on a ladder towards God, towards enlightenment. There's so many other things that you need to believe and do. So you need to come and you need to listen to us. We have the divine knowledge. And then there were the angel-worshipping guys. They probably had tie-dyed robes, and they would have, probably would have loved the Beatles in the 60s. But the Bible tells us, yes, there are, they are angels, but we're not to worship them. We don't have to pray to them or through them. And then there were the indecisive, synchronistic guys who were kind of sitting on the fence going, oh, we don't know what to believe. So we're just going to take a little bit of what they're saying, a little bit of what they're saying, a little bit of what they're saying, and top it all off with a little bit of Jesus, and hopefully we would have covered our bases. And so you can imagine old old poor Epaphras, he's pulling his hair out. He's like, what on earth do I do? And so he runs off to Paul in Rome. He eventually finds Paul. He tells Paul what's going on. And you know what Paul does. He just says, bring me my pen Bring me my parchment. We are going to sort these guys out. Today we we have a similar mindset that says, hey, listen, there, there are so many other ways to live. 
There really are so many other things to believe in. Why would you want to limit yourself to just Jesus? I mean, think about it. It's, it's more than just giving up your Sunday morning to come be a part of a church service. It's more than just giving up an evening during the week to be a part of a community group. What we're talking about here is a mindset. It's a belief. It's an identity. This is the very core of who you are. It becomes the lens by which you say and do everything in life. Why would you want to limit that just to Jesus, just to one man? Like I said earlier, church attendance is at its lowest amongst the millennials. And they're the tech-savvy group. They're the guys who are on the cutting edge of what's new and what's happening, what's hip in the world. And stats tell us they are not coming to church. They don't want to come to church. I'm thinking, well, is that Jesus' fault? Does the church need to supplement Jesus because he's not attractional enough? No, but I think the problem is the church is supplementing Jesus. So people are not getting a, a true, authentic experience and understanding of who he actually is. For some reason, the church is competing with the world and who can put on the better performance. And because of that, we are creating a culture of consumerism as opposed to participation. Meaning, come, come and be entertained on a Sunday. And, and we, we want you to leave going, I wonder what they're going to do, I wonder what they're going to put on next Sunday. As opposed to, no, come and know and understand that you are the church, that we are the church. We get to come to be together to be a part of each other's lives. We get to come to be together and worship our Lord and Savior together. And we get to encourage each other to keep our eyes firmly fixed on our Lord and Savior. Secondly, no matter how big the church is, and there's some pretty big churches in this world. No matter how big the church is, its budget will never compete with what the world can put on. And so the consumer mentality will always look for the next best thing. So I don't want to come across naive or too simple, but my answer is Jesus is enough for the church. That's what we're tackling this morning. So under our big banner question for the series, is Jesus enough? We're looking at, is Jesus enough for the church? And I'm saying he is. And here's why. Because Jesus gives himself to the church. Jesus gave himself up for the church, and he gives himself to the church. And that, that's essentially what we're going to see in the book of Colossians. So, all that by way of introduction. Won't you turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? Don't worry, we'll just be looking at two verses uh, this morning. Colossians chapter 1, you can grab a Bible in your chair pockets, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can click on Colossians, or you're welcome to follow on the screen with us. Just looking at the first two verses from which I will show you how Jesus has given himself up for the church and that that is enough. So here we go. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Coloss, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 
If you flip your bulletin around, you'll see where we're going this morning. Three ways in which Jesus has given himself to the church, and that is number one, Jesus gives his word. Number two, Jesus gives his unity. And then lastly, we will see Jesus gives his grace and peace. So here we go. Jesus is enough for the church, point number one, because he gives his word. Now, don't misunderstand what I am saying there. When, we, when you and I say, when you say, I'll give you my word, essentially what we're saying is, I promise. So if I, if I say, I'll give you my word, I didn't eat the last cookie in the house, if I'm the one saying that in our household, everyone knows that I'm lying. But here, uh, what I mean by this statement, Jesus gives us his word, is that he himself is the word. Jesus, firstly, is the personification of God's word. He is the living word of God, fully God, yet fully man, who came to reveal God to us and to redeem man from our sin. So way back in the Old Testament, God spoke mainly through prophets, and then he himself comes and he takes on flesh, he clothes himself in flesh, reveals God to us, he's the living word, But now, what about you and I? What about us? Jesus is not with us in the flesh, so how does he give us his word? Look at the first verse again, how Paul begins his letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So just a quick little aside here. Letters back then were were written differently to how we write them today. Back then, you started off by telling the recipients who you were. Which I think, in a sense, is like you know, us receiving emails today. You, know, you, you get an email in your inbox, you can, before you even open it, you can see who it's from. So you see CUC in your inbox, and just, I ain't going to open that for them. <laughs> so straight away, we know from this letter, that, that is, that straight away, that, that Paul and Timothy are writing this letter. And like I said earlier, Paul was in, was in prison under house arrest in Rome, which, which meant that he was allowed visitors. And so his young disciple, Timothy, was with him. And most likely, Timothy acted as the scribe as Paul dictated this letter to the Colossians. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus giving his word to the church? The word apostle there means sent one. It means messenger. So essentially what Paul is saying to the Colossians is, hello Colossians, I know we've never met before, just want to let you know that I am a sent one or a messenger of Jesus Christ. So this letter is, is not really from me, but Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior. It's His word, not mine. So therefore, what you are about to read, Colossians, what you're about to hear and what we are about to unpack for the next couple of months is the very authoritative word of God. Oh, and by the way, he says, I became an apostle not not because of my own will, my own choice or, or, or the church's choice or will or because some people just thought I had a real knack for theology. No, he says, by the will of God himself. God Almighty willed that I become a messenger of his son, Jesus. That's why everything in this letter is of extreme importance and extreme authority, the highest authority, in fact. Now, let me tell you, explain the deal with apostleship. It's a role within the church that has been greatly debated and greatly abused over the years. The biblical qualifications of an apostle is someone, you had to have been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. You 
Secondly, you had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. You had to have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, which usually came out in terms of signs and wonders and, and miracles that backed up your preaching. Now, Paul was an exception only to the first criteria. He wasn't part of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't part of the original 12. That's why he describes himself as one untimely born. But he certainly saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. I mean, talk about a defining moment. And he certainly was empowered by the Holy Spirit. You just have to read the book of Acts. But the ultimate qualification of an, of an apostle was that they were charged with the very word of God. They were given the revelation and authority to preach, teach, and write down God's very words. Paul says it like this to the Ephesian church. Have a look at this. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church, right? So what he's saying is Jewish and Gentile believers are now members of the church. And what is this church grounded on? What is this church founded on? He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God, pointing towards the cross, pointing towards the coming Messiah. And the apostles speak God's word from the cross, from the revealed Messiah, who he says Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, a building, uh, in a building, everything is set, is built towards the cornerstone, built towards the capstone, the foundation, everything is built up towards the cornerstone. So in other words, everything they said, everything they did pointed towards Jesus, your cornerstone, our cornerstone as the church. So the question, how does Jesus give his word to the church? through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the prophets and to the apostles. They have penned down God's word for us. But now, like I said, the office of apostleship has been greatly debated and greatly abused over the years. I'll explain it like this. If I believe I have been given the office of apostleship, what is to stop me from going to the Bible publishers and saying, whoa, 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 before you print out the next set of Bibles that will be distributed all around the world, I want to hand in my book. Can you, can you include my letter into the Bible? The Gospel according to Jason. So you're going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jason, Acts. And if they laugh at me, I go, <laughs> you can't laugh at me. I am an apostle by the will of God. Like Paul, like Peter, like John, put my letter in, please. So what's the deal? What's the deal here? We need to make a distinction between the office of apostleship and the gift of apostleship. The office, or what I like to call it, the, the capital A apostles, were the original twelve including Paul, who were charged with the very responsibility of preaching, teaching, and writing down God's word. Like I said, they, they were either with Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, and, or they saw him post-cross, post-grave, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and directly commissioned by Jesus. And so the office of apostleship, or capital A Apostles, 
That office was concluded at the passing of the last apostle who most scholars reckon was John. John who wrote the Gospel of John and 1, 2, and 3 John and, and the book of Revelation. When he passed away, the office of apostleship concluded. But I believe the gift of apostleship still continues today, but it's different in its authority and responsibility. An apostle today is still someone who is sent, is still a messenger, but they're sent with the completed word of God. In fact, I, I like the word missionary to best describe the gift of an apostle. A person can receive the gift to be a missionary, to go to a a specific people group in a specific country or an unknown people group who have never heard the gospel and they take the completed word of God and they preach it and they teach it and they, they start churches and they disciple people with God's word. Now you can see how where the, apostle, where the possible abuse of it can come in. There's a movement in church world that wants to bring back the Office of Apostleship, capital A, Apostles. Essentially what they're saying is they'll introduce themselves, they love to introduce themselves as, I am Apostle so-and-so, of equal authority as Paul and, and Peter and John, and therefore what I say is the very authoritative, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And this is especially prominent uh, back where I come from in South Africa and Africa. And essentially what this movement is saying is, Jesus' word, this, is not enough for the church. I have fresh revelation. You need to listen to me. You need to rely on me because I have new, fresh revelation of God's word. And you and I can clearly and confidently say to them, no thank you. You weren't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. You never saw the resurrected Christ. The canon of Scripture is closed. You cannot add to it, and you cannot take anything away from it. So, getting back to verse 1. Paul is simply saying in this opening line, everything, about, everything I'm about to write to you is the very word of Jesus, commissioned by God Almighty. God is about to speak to you. I mean, can you, can you imagine that? Can you imagine if they truly grasped what Paul was saying in his opening line of his letter? Can you imagine what they would have looked like? I reckon Anisimus' house where they gathered would have been packed to the rafters. And I reckon no one would have said a word as God's word was read to them. Which brings that to us. If we truly understand this to be the very word of Jesus, how should you and I respond to it? If Jesus has given his word to the church, how should the church respond to it? I'll just tell you a personal conviction. A little voice in my head every now and, goes, every now and, every now and again says, Jason, if you didn't preach most Sundays, would you spend as much time in God's Word as you do? If you didn't go to community group week after week, would you spend as much time in God's Word preparing for community group as you do? 
Maybe some of you are like me. When you wake up early in the morning, you're, you're torn between reaching for your phone and reaching for your Bible. Jay and I had this conversation earlier this week. Maybe for some of you, your, your Bible is on your phone. And so you, you, there's this temptation to flick between your, your Bible app and, and your social media apps. Let me give you one practical suggestion. There, there are many, but have a look at this example from an Old Testament psalmist. Have a look at Psalm 119, verse 18. It's a prayer, and he says this. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Okay, so he's praying from an old covenant perspective. That's why he says law. But you and I even know that the law pointed towards Jesus. And so we can pray it from a new covenant perspective. We can say, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word, your completed word. And the word behold is just way better than the word see, right? I open my Bible in the early morning and, and I just see words. But are we beholding them? Are we considering what they say? Beholding what specifically? He says, wondrous things, awe-inspiring truths. They're going to cause your heart to swell up in praise and adoration and joy in your Lord and Savior, Jesus. But he says, we can't do it on our own. We need divine help. So we pray before we open our Bibles, open my spiritual eyes to see you and to hear from you this morning. And then just a quick, another practical suggestion, have a plan, have a plan. I mean, this Bible is incredibly intimidating if you don't have a plan in how to read it. And again, there are many Bible apps that, that help you and keep you accountable in, in reading through the entire book itself or going through particular topics from a biblical perspective. But we need a plan and we need to be reliant on the Lord to show us things, to show himself, to speak to us through his word. So, Jesus is enough for the church because he gives us his word. He gives his word to us. Secondly, he's enough for the church because he gives his unity. Point number two. This is one of the most incredible aspects of the gospel. That we as believers are spiritually united to our Lord and Savior. Individually, you are spiritually united to Jesus. Corporately, we are spiritually united to Jesus. Paul says it like this in verse 2. He says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, united to Christ at Coloss. So physically, they were in Coloss, but spiritually, they were in Jesus, clothed in Jesus. But now we need to be careful in how we read it, how we understand that. Do you have to be a saint and a faithful brother or sister, because that's the word delphoi in the Greek, which can be translated sibling. So do you have to be a saint or a faithful sibling so as to then be united to Christ? No. That's how the religious mindset would read that and understand that particular verse. Rather, by being in Christ or united to Christ, you become a saint or you become a faithful sibling. So the fruit of being in Christ is that you get a new identity and you get a new family. Paul says our new identity is that we are saints. Now, I don't know about you, but that word has the connotation of being perfect. 
You know, when, when people say, oh, so-and-so is such a saint, what do they mean? Oh, you know, they, they just never do anything wrong, always so good, always so helpful. What's worse is that word can also be translated as holy depending on the context. And again, I don't know about you, but sometimes I do not feel very holy, especially when I'm being tailgated on the highway or when I'm being taken out at one of the traffic circles, even if I don't know what I'm doing at those traffic circles, not the point. But what Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying here is, is in Christ you are. In Christ you are a saint because Jesus has qualified you to be a saint. He says it like this to the Corinthians. Have a look at this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he, that's God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus is the true saint. He, he knew no sin. He's never sinned. He has a purpose. So that in him, there's our unity language, union language, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that you and I might become saints. This is known as the great exchange. It's also... Uh, uh, courtroom language, and so maybe you've heard this illustration before, but you've got to picture yourself in a courtroom situation, and you're standing before the judge, and your entire rap sheet is before him. Every single bad thought you've thought, every single bad word you've said, every single bad deed you have done is before him, and he's read it, and he picks up that hammer gavel thing, and he's about to slam it down and declare his verdict over you. And you're cringing, right? And you're thinking, man, this is death sentence. And he slams that hammer down. He slams that gavel down. And he declares righteous, justified, forgiven. And we're thinking, what? How on earth? And then he points you to the back of the courtroom. At the back of the courtroom is Jesus standing there like this, with holes in his hands, holes in his feet, and he says, paid for. I paid for your death penalty, because you and I, we're together. In fact, he says, your name on your rap sheet was rubbed out. My name was put there. And your name was put on my rap sheet. He who knew no sin, saint. And Paul says, you are clothed in Christ. Your identity before God is now as a saint, a holy, righteous one. But now listen. That's your position. It's not your condition. Right? For those of you who like your theological terms, this is the doctrine of justification. It's a once-off declaration made over you. You are justified. And now, once that happens, we begin growing in that position. That refers to sanctification. We'll get to that later in the book. And because that's your identity, it's been declared over you, you are now a member of the family of God. You are a brother in Christ. You are a sister in Christ. But then notice Paul says faithful. He puts the adjective faithful there. And so what, what, why does he put it there? Why doesn't he just say to the saints and siblings in Christ? It's because, again, scholars were saying, some of the Colossians were beginning to think, mm, maybe Jesus isn't enough. 
Maybe Jesus isn't enough for my salvation. Maybe Jesus isn't enough for my identity. But there was a faithful group who were remaining steadfast. So Jesus literally gave of of himself on the cross so that you and I might become the church, so that you and I might have a new identity, so that you and I might have a new family. Listen, the moment the church or a church perceives that Jesus is not enough, it will begin to look for an identity elsewhere. The church corporately becomes focused on being accepted in culture and society. It becomes united to culture, it becomes united to society and begins to bear the fruit of society and culture. So sunrise, as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to rally around each other to protect that fruit of being in Christ that we are saints, that we are in his family together. That's the fruit that we are to display out there in the places and the spaces where he has put us. So, Jesus is enough for the church because he gives us his word, he gives us his unity. Finally, we'll finish off with this. He gives his grace and peace. Last part of verse two says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Notice those last two words, our Father. This just serves to reiterate and reinforce that we are a family with God Almighty as our Father. I mean, just take a moment, take the rest of your life to focus on that, to get your mind around that. This holy, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-conquering, ever-present Being is our father. He's our dad. That's amazing. And when I think about that and when I I read his word and and I read what he's done and I read what he's capable of doing, I start to feel very small. I start to feel very insignificant. I begin to feel unworthy of being in his church, being in his family being a leader in one of his local churches. And then I read a very simple introduction to a short little letter to a little church that tells me grace and peace come from this almighty God. This unworthy sinner is no longer a child of wrath under God's wrath, but is now a recipient of grace and peace from God my Father. So every day, sunrise, every day, we can wake up and know our Heavenly Father looks at us and says, I have grace for you today. Unmerited favor. Walk in my favor. Walk in my grace that I have for you today. Grace that says, you are mine and I am yours. Grace that says that you are delivered from sin, death, and the devil, that you are forgiven. Grace that says that I will look over you as a loving heavenly father looks over his children. And not just grace every day, but my peace as well. 
peace that says there will never, ever be any animosity between you and I ever again. You are no longer under my wrath, but you are now my adopted son, my adopted daughter in my family. This is shalom peace in Hebrew, which refers to whole, your whole being, an inner peace and an outward peace that only comes from God our Father. So who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to be a part of the church? Why, why wouldn't the millennials want that? Here's the deal. Jesus gave all of himself so that you and I might become the church and be recipients of his grace and peace. That Jesus' death on the cross in our place for our sins becomes the bridge or the channel between us and God Almighty. We become his children, he becomes our father, and we receive grace and peace from him every day. The moment we believe Jesus is not enough is the moment our identity begins to wobble. It's the moment we begin to look for acceptance elsewhere. It's the moment we begin grappling around for grace and favor and peace from this world that cannot give us that grace and that favor and that peace. So this book, especially the book of Colossians, which comes from Jesus, it's going to remind us, Sunrise, it's going to remind us about who he is, what he has accomplished for us, and that it's enough for us. And that's why I'm so excited to journey through this book with you all, so that you and I might know that we know that Jesus is enough for us, and we might know that grace, and we might know that peace, and we live that grace and that peace out, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in. Amen. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, I don't know how we can ever thank you enough for giving up yourself and giving yourself to the church so that we might know you, that we might know you through your word, we might know you through spiritually being united to you, our Lord and Savior. That is, what is true of you is now true of us because of what you did for us, nothing to do with us. And that every day we get to wake up and know that we are in your grace, and that we have peace with God, our Father, because of you, Jesus, and you alone. Would you drop that down deep into our hearts so that we would live that out? If there's anyone here, Jesus, who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, who doesn't know that grace, who doesn't know that peace, Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes right now to see you, Jesus, to reach out to you, Jesus, and believe in you, Jesus, as their Lord and as their Savior. 
Would you bless our series through your book, the book of Colossians? Would you bless it as we have started today? Would you bless every Sunday? Every Sunday, would you open our eyes a little bit more to see Jesus and to know that Jesus is enough for us? Amen.